welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. I don't know if Gerald mentioned that uh, Mike Rowe is going to be here on Saturday. Going to be filming an episode of Dirty Jobs. <laughs> Dirty Jobs. Good work going to be going on. No, it, it's, it is a good time of fellowship. And, and like Rita says, you know, it's all kinds of skill levels, whether, whether you could clean windows or, or scrub a few things. Don't think that you wouldn't be helpful. It, it doesn't get that bad. It is really a good time together. Um, so we look here at Ecclesiastes, the end of chapter 2. We're already going to be through two chapters in this book. I'll begin by saying that I agree with John MacArthur who once said, you know, if you are living your best life now, which is the title of a very popular book, he said, well, then that would indicate that you're going to hell after you die, right? So we recognize this isn't our best life now, but I, but I think most of us would like to experience a little better life now, right, than we currently do. Uh, it is godly for us to want to pursue enjoyment in this life. And the source of that enjoyment, a large portion of that is in our passage today. Solomon was pursuing enjoyment. He pursued every type of worldly, lustful satisfaction, a merchandise, fortune. Uh, we've read plenty about that in chapter 2 already. And up to this point in this chapter, it has just left him empty. It's, it's just provided nothing but despair for him. But beginning in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 24, we, we see a definite break in the storm clouds. There's a break in the clouds here. Uh, they have been looming over Solomon. He has been in despair. Have you ever watched the movie The Perfect Storm? Yeah, The Perfect Storm. Good movie. It's about a group of commercial fishermen who go out off the coast of Newfoundland and far off the coast in their trawler. That's a type of boat that drags nets and, and lines. It got stuck in Hurricane Grace back in 1991. The, the, the movie is a bit of an embellishment, but the story underlying is true. The people in it are true. And in the cinematic portrayal of the story, there comes a point in the storm's vortex that has entrapped them, that they, they are frantically attempting to return to port. At one point, their boat, boat is trying to break over a massive wave, and right at the crest of the wave, the clouds break, and there's a giant beam of sunlight that shines through. Anybody seen that point in the movie? Amazing point in that movie as they try to escape that storm, the, sh the sun comes shining through. We've reached that point in Ecclesiastes. The sun is beginning to break through. A small break in the clouds over Solomon. Did anybody see the movie? That, that, was, that was wonderful. Do you, do you follow me? That desperate need to see some hope. In verse 24, we see a ray of sunshine here. Uh, now, the perfect storm might not be the perfect illustration for everything because at the end of the movie, they, they all perished. So... You know, that, that was kind of disappointing. But boy, they were living too. 
Those people, those fishermen were really living. They were chasing their dreams. They loved their craft. They wanted to get up in the morning and work hard. You know, you know <laughs> commercial fishing, that, that's not for pansies, folks. That's hard work. And as you watch that movie, you begin to realize the reason why, why these men up in the, in the Northeast, they, they are legends. They are legends up there, blue-collar legends. And, and at one point in the movie, they're discussing amongst themselves what they're going to do with their cut of the earnings, with their haul of the fish. Uh, they'd had a big haul. Uh, they're pursuing life. They're smiling at the future. They've made a great haul of fish. And this is why we, we love these movies. We love because we can identify with these characters, their hope for the future, the fruit of their labor, providing them each with what they need. They're simple guys. They're a lot like us. Very simple men who are living life to the max. Living it to the max. Were there any royalty among their ranks? No. No, no royalty. No, no uh, platinum record deals. No awards. No millionaires. Not a single one. They were just working really hard to make the most out of what they had. Making the most of what they had. Now, that movie inspires me to become a commercial fisherman. <laughs> Except I'm afraid of deep water. That's a problem. But other than that, you know, I want to hang out with guys like this. I want to hang out with, with people who are pursuing life. These characters are very realistic to us. And, and, and if we're honest, we really just want what they want. We want to have courage. We want to chase our dreams. We want to pursue a better life day to day. That's the course we want to be on. Throughout his reign, King Solomon has had privilege like no other. He suffered no lack of anything. He's denied himself no pleasure. He had it all. He, he had it now. And it left him feeling pretty empty. And in our passage last week, Solomon lamented when he dies, I'm just going to have to leave it all to, every, to somebody else. Everything I've labored for, everything I've toiled for, is going to be left to someone who comes after me. And his complaint is, what is the point of all of this toil? Remember from last week, what is the point if I'm just going to save it up, gain the whole world, but then leave it all behind? As we learned last week, Solomon determined that stockpiling for the future isn't as important as living each day. Living every day. And now in verse 24, Solomon concludes, There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he is given the task of collecting and gathering so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. He says this too is vanity and striving after the wind. You know, near the end of his life now, looking, looking back at all of his toil, all of his years of work, uh, King Solomon reckons, reckons, you know, he goes, I might have been happier as a commercial fisherman. Maybe a farmer or, or a nurse. 
some other laborer. In fact, later in chapter 5, Solomon will tell us, the sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. Solomon wants to be like us. He wants to work each day. He wants to provide for his needs. He wants to lay his head down at night and rest, knowing that what he has done is good. As I alluded to a couple weeks ago, our our belief that is fed to us uh, through the media day in and day out, the belief that the uber-rich are automatically more satisfied because they have more or because they have acquired more, it's a mirage. Folks, it is a mirage. Satan tried that trick on Christ. After Jesus was fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and he was weak and tired uh, from that period, Satan took him up on a high mountain, showed him everything in the world. And, and, And he tells Jesus, if you'll just bow down and worship me, Meaning, if you'll take this path, the world's path, then I'll provide you all of these kingdoms to enjoy. One doubt that Solomon was thinking in his mind, you know, that might have worked on uh, Solomon, would say Jesus, ain't working on me. I know that is not, not a, a real deal. All the wisdom and riches of the world aren't going to provide the satisfaction that you promised Satan. There's another man who became enormously successful and wealthy. He achieved more notoriety and uh, fortune than than any of us could imagine. I I love this. You know, uh, we all know him because his name is engraved on about 20% of the cars out in our parking lot. And after all of his success, Henry Ford once said this, I was happier as a mechanic working in a shop. Isn't that great? I believe him. I believe him. You know, some of my fondest memories are, are uh, at Delta Airlines in the hangar with the airplanes and the mechanics and the buzz of the work going on day to day. In fact, every time that we drive into an airport, uh, my heartbeat starts racing for just the excitement of that work. Rita will tell you whenever we go over to Tampa... <laughs> Uh, that's where we originally met and were married. Uh, I'll try to talk her into just driving by the hangar. Just to remember, this last time we drove by, th- this is great. Last time we drive by out in the parking lot, they've got the picnic tables off to the side. And these men out there sharing their lunch. Working together, day to day, earning and sharing and laughing. Lord, that is living that is living. What a wonderful blessing to share work. And after a life of building wealth beyond what any man could ever consume, Solomon decides in verse 24, there is nothing better for a man to then to eat and to drink and tell himself that his labor is good. Labor is good. We were created to work folks, from the very beginning, even uh, before the fall into sin, when Adam was placed into the garden, Genesis 2 assures that God placed the man there to work, placed him there to, to into this garden, this creation that God has given us in order to work. And Solomon has realized it is the labor itself that is good. 
It's the labor that is good and what he enjoys. This is the break in the clouds over Solomon. Labor, it's good. Work is good. And he says this also, I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and have enjoyment without him? Solomon discovers satisfaction. It's in the simplest passing delights of life. Food and drink. It's all provided by daily labor. Eat and drink, verse 24. Eat with enjoyment, verse 25. Open the lunchbox with some friends. These are the blessings of God. What more does a person need? If you have that every day, uh, we don't need to own a multi-million dollar high-rise to share the enjoyment of the basic things of humanity to eat and to drink together. Folks, you don't have to be rich to enjoy these things. One night, Rita and I met uh, the Alberinos over at Becky and Carl Kurzman's. We shared, if I remember right, a pasta salad and a couple pies. And we laughed until we nearly cried. What joy just to share a meal Just to laugh and talk about life, to talk about family, to share what God is doing through your life. That's what life is all about, folks. We didn't need special entertainment. Best I can remember, the TV was never turned on. We just enjoyed our time, shared a card game. We shared our lives with joy. And Solomon appears to me that he's concluded there's nothing better. If you have reached this threshold, there's, there's no getting better after that. Rita often says, like, once your stomach's full, it doesn't matter whether it was a hot dog or a $100 steak. You're satisfied. Your stomach's full. If we have food and covering, we have all that we need. Jerry, how much does that, uh, that world-famous firehouse meatloaf that you bake cost? 15 bucks, maybe, with the baked potato and the butter, and just share it with friends. Jerry and Carolyn also keep a full candy dish. Everyone should know that. We clean them out every time. The simple things that are just so enjoyable food and drink. I'm, I'm more confident than ever. And uh, I've intellectually known this, because Scripture tells us, by more, conf- uh, more confident today than ever, that just sharing the basic human essentials, just those basic things in life, are real, really all that we need to enjoy. We can enjoy one another, enjoy what God has blessed us with, uh, in, a, in a caution ag- uh, against the lure, the deceptive lure uh, of pursuing riches, just for the sake of pursuing riches. The Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy, warning, The godliness is a means of great gain, when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Solomon surely learned that lesson. And Paul says, If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. 
Folks, we can believe that. If, if in regard to food and covering, we, we think that uh, Paul is just insisting, you know, we should just always be content with some dry moldy bread and, uh, and, and lying under a tarp or something, I don't think that's what he means. I think he means what Solomon means. He's urging us contentment with our daily portion, that which we have. I don't believe uh, Paul is being severe in this. He's comparing an attitude of satisfaction against those people who never are. It's like, just be content with what the Lord has provided you through your work. And Paul, who was Saul the Pharisee before he became the Apostle Paul, he would have been very familiar with this wisdom of Solomon. I mean, he would have, he would have studied uh, this book, Ecclesiastes himself, when he was a teacher of the law, where he would read this, There is nothing better, nothing better, think about that, nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good, with food and covering, with these we shall be content, says Paul. Tremendous harmony between the Old Testament and the New The lessons of life and humanity, Old Testament and New, are the same. They teach the same story about man, God, creation, sin, separation from God, and reconciliation to God through grace. It's the same story, cover to cover. God has bestowed us with good things. Paul's very familiar, as I said. Solomon has advised we shouldn't search for happiness in the luxuries of the world. He would say, well, I've done that. You aren't going to find it there. Don't concern yourself with with seeking what the world seeks. Find your satisfaction in the basic activities of life. Food, drink, simple enjoyments, covering, accessible to most through common labor. Common everyday labor, these things are accessible to most. Um, For this reason, we should remind ourselves, man should remind himself that our labor is good. Our labor is really good. The term good there means pleasing. We We should view our labor, our careers, our jobs as pleasing positively view them. The English Standard Version translates verse 24 in this way. It says there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Find enjoyment there. Hard work is good. Colossians 3 verse 23 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord. Work hard. Find your soul's enjoyment in your work. Pursue a work that you love because according to Solomon, there's nothing better. There's no higher threshold day to day to achieve. And since there's nothing better in the sphere of labor, he's speaking, than to enjoy simple pleasures that are made accessible through labor, isn't it astonishing how people keep inventing new ways how to avoid it? And then they wonder why their lives are so miserable. They just found 30 different ways to get out of doing their job, and they don't know why they're miserable. Uh, We can actually expel more effort trying to get out of work than we actually put into our work. 
And all that does is create guilt. It creates sadness, shame, depression. Sometimes, sometimes it produces poverty. And since there's nothing better than finding enjoyment in labor and toil, why would we rob anyone else the satisfaction by encouraging them not to work? Usurping God's demand to be productive and make themselves useful and then tell them, you know, you really shouldn't have to work. I I do think that uh, this modern phenomenon that we're experiencing where it seems everybody's trying to find a way to get out of work. Some way, if we can just get out of work, whether it's through invention, whether it is through uh, other programs and other things, I, I really believe that since the curse in the garden, you go to Genesis chapter 3, and the, the curse involves that, that now man will work by the sweat of his brow. Work will now have toil. Uh, rather than being before the fall, Adam tilled the garden in, in complete fellowship with God. Now God has, uh, has added toil and thorns and thistles to our work. And he says, now this is how you're going to earn it. Because of sin, this is how you're going to work day to day. And ever since then, we've been tempted to say, uh, say back to him, uh, no, I'm not. I'm going to find some way to get out of this curse without first going through Christ. There's no getting out of the curse without Christ. Redemption is through the blood of the Son. And since there is nothing better than for a person to enjoy the fruit of his own labor... Why would we forcibly redistribute to him the fruit of another man's labor? Ever think of that? That's completely short-circuiting Scripture's command, as we studied last week, demanding that all work, that all of us produce. Uh, But this week, idleness is especially detrimental because it works, uh, it serves, work serves as God's provision for enjoyment. So, things like food and work, which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth, like that, work serves as our enjoyment. Perhaps the, the best example, as I stated earlier during the Scripture reading, in the Bible that I can find of a person who enjoys her work and enjoys sharing the satisfaction that she gets from work is the Proverbs 31 woman. There it says that the excellent wife, she looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She doesn't sound like a princess or a diva, does she? No, this woman is seen gathering raw materials, wool and flax. She's creating things out of it. She's weaving. She's making. She rises also while it is still night, and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. You know, portions to her maidens may, may imply that she has female servants. But it could also simply refer to younger women. Maidens are younger women. Uh, some translations will say damsel, which is a young unmarried woman. 
Uh, it can also denote a little girl. However we take it, the content in Proverbs 31 doesn't suggest that this woman relies on servants to do her work for her. Right? She works hard. She shares it with the younger women, the young maidens, to serve as their role model. The portions that she distributes to them, to her maidens, she provides them as a sample. Saying, this is what you too can have, what you can enjoy, what you can share with others, if you'll imitate my behavior. She's a good role model. She, continues, she considers a field and she buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She's an industrious woman. Loves to go after the world. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She smiles at the future. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gate. Boy, she, she serves as an outstanding example to all men and women. All men and women. She enjoys working she, she loves to share her food. She shares her intelligence with others. She shares her gain, what she makes through the fruit of her hands. It says she, works, uh, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She smiles at the future. That, folks, is a threshold of happiness that can only be achieved through daily toil, daily work. Solomon says, This I have seen that it is from the hand of God. From the hand of God. Again, Solomon is setting now his sights beyond the sun. Up until this point, everything was under the sun. Now finally, the sun shines through. And Solomon is reaching beyond to the divine benefactor. And from our daily ration, uh, that's which we enjoy to our soul's salvation... James writes this, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is the source of all good things. He's provided the fish in the sea. He he has put the cattle in the fields. The, The grain has risen from the earth at His command. He's provided everything we need. God's provided it all. He's given us His Son, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. God has given everything. Christ died as a sacrifice on, our, on the cross. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we can know by the sacrifice He gave that God is pleased with us. Do you know that? God is pleased with you through His Son, Jesus Christ, as you have trusted in the sacrifice made at the cross, the sacrifice given for your sins, that now you're reconciled to the Father through faith in Him, that God is happy. God is pleased with you. He is the benevolent source of everything in our lives that is good. This is just a glimpse through the storm clouds. This is just a little, a little glimpse. Solomon has seen a glimmering light. We'll see as we proceed into chapter 3. He's not fully out of the woods yet. He's going to struggle for a few chapters. But once God enters the frame of the picture of your life, all things begin to change. It's a huge change. A huge change. The writer of Ecclesiastes here, he's not an atheist. He's contrasting an empty life under the sun 
with a working man who's filled with enjoyment, who accounts and gives all credit to God. A theologian named Douglas O'Donnell writes this, quote, When Solomon explored enjoyment as if it were independent from God, as an autonomous human experiment, he found that grabbing hold of joy from idolatrous and immoral pleasures was like trying to staple the wind. If we neglect God in our pursuit of joy, everything good in life, for example, possessions and pleasures, it slips through our grasp. But if we give thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ for every good gift, then whatever we receive from Him, practical wisdom, daily bread, red table wine, our lifetime of labors, and so on, is seen as a gift that brings genuine joy. Does what God provides you through your labor, does it bring you joy? Are you thankful? Are you grateful for everything that we have? God offers that. God is the source of joy. If you trust in Him, finding joy in the simple daily things of sharing a lunch, that's what God offers in the simple things. And through labor, or through our toil, God happily provides us or supplies us with our daily sustenance every day. That's the point so far. So as we proceed to verse 26, uh, we dare not divorce the principle of labor, what, what is actually being discussed here, from our interpretation of the next verse. Labor remains the dominant theme throughout all of chapter 2. It is the dominant theme the whole way through. The word labor uh, appears nine times in this chapter. So labor, seen as good in verse 24, it is inseparably linked to the person who is good in verse 25, or excuse me, verse 26. So, so look at that. Look, look at verse 26. For to a person who is good in his sight, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting, so that he may give it to the one who is good in God's sight. Well, I like the sound of that. First notice, God is the qualifier of what is good or who is good. Though Romans 3 verse 10 assures us that we are all sinners, that none is good, not even one. We know after trusting in Christ, when His sinless account, when Jesus' sinless account is assigned to us through faith, that God views us as pleasurable and good. It's always through faith. So the reference to the good person in verse 26 refers to a recipient of God's grace. The good person belongs to God. He is contrasted then to the person who is not good in God's sight. That, that's the sinner in, the, in this passage. So, so we see two players here. All right, The recipient of God's grace who is good in God's eyes juxtaposed to the sinner who remains alienated from God. To the one who God views as good, he gives wisdom, knowledge, joy. These are what God grants to us by His grace. By comparison to the sinner, He's given this. God has given the task of gathering and collecting so that He, meaning the sinner, 
may give to the one who's good in God's sight. Well, who do you want to be in this picture? That's a pretty easy one right there. The, the sinner, because he doesn't have God, doesn't have any joy in God, he spends his entire life gathering and collecting for God's people. He may have a lot, but the purpose of his life in God's eyes is to collect and gather for God's people. And the sinner, the sinner, the person who collects all that, he does that how? By, but he does it by dropping a check in the post office and, and mailing it to the one who God sees as good, right? The one who's sitting at home in the recliner not doing anything at all. No. No. Or maybe it's the sinner who toils to his entire life, working and earning and building and collecting, while the good person you know, lies at home hoping that Congress will somehow soon pass a law to redirect that sinner's wealth to himself while he, while he sits at home doing nothing. No. No. Considering the context of verses 24 and 25, how does God redistribute the wealth of the sinner into the hands of the one who he sees is good? I heard it. The context insists that God achieves this divine transaction through our own labor. He redirects it to us as we work. Proverbs 28 verse 8 says this, He who increases his wealth by interest and usury, the sinner, gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. It's a good man. Job 26 verse 17 says of the wicked man, Though he piles up silver like dust and prepares garments as plentiful as the clay, he may prepare it, but the just shall wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. Isn't that a great promise? That great problem. God sovereignly redistributes wealth through the course of our work. It may be transferred via payroll. It may be through a lucrative business contract that, that you have made with someone. God has some funny ways of moving money around. I'm telling you what, I've got a few stories. Yeah. God will get the money where He wants it. He takes it from whoever he wants and he gives it to whomever he wants and he does it whenever God wants. But we who are good don't receive it by sitting around. We have to go out. We have to earn it. We have to labor for it and God will provide our every need. This is the underlying principle also to Proverbs 13 verse 22 which I shared last week. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. This too is talking about divine reappropriation, God's way of working things for his good. What the good man leaves behind is his goodness to his children and his grandchildren by teaching them that God will always take care of their needs. God uses the wealth of the sinners to provide for those who are righteous. The Bible, the Bible never attaches a moral a, a man's morality 
or his integrity uh, to, how, to how full of barns he leaves behind after, well, actually it does. Jesus says in Luke 12, uh, that guy was the unrighteous one. We talked about that last week. But a man's morality is not attached to how much money he's able to save up through his lifetime that it would reach generation after generation. No, what, what the rich man, or what the good man does is he teaches his children, his grandchildren, about God, about the principles of honest work, teaches them about Jesus Christ and the salvation in him, and that God will always provide for them through diligent labor. That's how God provides for us. You want a better life? Go to work. You would like a more reliable car or a larger home? Go to work. Your boss may be just the Lord's storehouse. And God is sovereign over our finances. You know how sovereign He is? When uh, in Exodus, when the Israelites were about to leave after the plagues, and, and they were going to go out into the wilderness and go and be led to the promised land, before they left, what did the Egyptians do? They gave them all their gold and silver. Think about that. And the scripture says, I forget which chapter this is in, but the scripture says that God pilfered the Egyptians. He moved them to give it to his people. What a picture of God's sovereignty. You can't can't read this passage without seeing God at work in every way for our provision, through our labor, through his power, this is the reason that Jesus was able to say this. Do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor as to your body as what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither reap nor sow. They have no storeroom or barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? You know, God will take care of you. God takes care of you. Don't worry, little flock. Jesus assures that God will provide for our every need. But don't sit in your living room waiting for a plate of spaghetti to fall from the sky. It almost never happens, right? God provides for our every need through work. Don't let life slip you by. Don't let it slip you by. We don't need to envy the Rockefellers or, or the Bezos or, or the who I have here, Bill Gates and the Warren Buffets of the world. We don't need to envy them. They're, they're all eventually going to lose it. One way or another, God will divide it up. By the way, did you know that, if, if I understand right, the, the owner of Amazon had to give 49% to his wife when they got divorced, it's already getting divided up. And that's going to get divided up amongst the lawyers, and the lawyers are going to pay the paralegals. It's all going to trickle down. It's always going to reach the place God wants it to be. He will divide it up one way or another. Uh, Amazon, uh, was it Berkshire, Hathaway, these big companies, they might be providing you the great job that provides for all of your needs, a good-paying job where you can wake up every morning and go to work. You'll have pie at the end of the week to share. Because all labor is good. All labor is good. And if we have food and covering with these, we will be 
content. Final note. You know, please don't confuse God, God's command to contentment with, with a call to complacency. Complacency, it's an uncritical satisfaction for, um, for your own lack of unachievement, all right? That's complacency. To be content and to be satisfied is not a command to be complacent. You know, you only go around once in this life, it's been said, you, you've got to go for the gusto. You've got to go after it. You, you can't sit at port on the boat and never expect you're going to bring home a big haul. You've got to go after it. You know, those fishermen that went out on the Andrea Gale was the name of their boat. They were going for the big haul. They were getting after it, a once-in-a-lifetime haul, the captain said, right? And, and the captain, who was George Clooney, which I actually thought he was a movie star, but he's the captain of this ship. And, and, and he declares, this is what he declares, he goes, we are going out to the Flemish Cap. And the crew goes, the Flemish Cap? And he says, yes, we're going to the Flemish Cap. They were going to take a calculated risk to go out where they knew the fish would be in that time of year. It was late in the season. That's why they went to the Flemish cap. And they all decided, you know what? We're going to take a chance. We're going to go out in order to make the day. Folks, you have to take risks. We have to take risks in life. We've got to go out. We've got to advance. We've got to strive to improve our horizons. We can't just be complacent. There are risks to everything. Scripture's command to contentment, to be satisfied with whatever we have, is not a command to be complacent. You've got to go after it. If you can get two more dollars per hour, get the two more dollars per hour. Go after it. Don't be satisfied with sergeant. Apply to be lieutenant if that's what's on your heart. Go after it. Make the most of what you are through your labor. It may, make, it may put you in a position to help a lot of people. Go after it. Make life exciting. Take a risk. You're going to end up having stories to share. You really are. Most of our stories, when we get together, if you remember, if you think about it, most of them are from our work and from our families and what we have seen God do throughout the course of our lives. The excitement comes through our work, through our families, through our fellowship. Go out and win the day. I think of Jerry Robertson here. He wasn't complacent as a fireman. He said, I'm going to go for chief. Folks, go for chief, all right? Matthew just became inspector at his job. Go after the promotion. Do it. Improve yourself. Love your work. Provide for your families and share. Uh, apply for that supervisor's position. I was going to tell Nathan if, his, if he was here today. Should he open another store? Yes. Yes, if you have the capacity to do that, do it. Make the most of every day of your life. Pursue your work to the fullest. The seasons change. They're going to be ripe with excitement. 
well, maybe even a little bit dangerous. Maybe even a little dangerous. Should we be satisfied with, with what we have? Yes. Should we be, be complacent? No. When you, look at, when you look at this in ministry, and this passage is about manual labor more so than ministry, but I have to look at that as well in ministry and what we do as a church. And uh, are we, should we be satisfied with what we've seen God do with this church? Yes. I'm, I'm very happy with what I see in the people and the love and the joy and what we've seen God do in the last, uh, last year, especially uh, considering the circumstances that we faced. By the way, the 2020 year in review report is almost done that, that we'll look back on last year. We'll bring that, that to the meeting in March, the congregational meeting, and, and boy, God has done some wonderful things. We're going to have a re- review in that report but I don't consider what we have done as enough. We can do so much more. We can do more. We need to work. The work, our work in Christ will never be finished until He comes. We need to go further. We need to take a risk. We need to grow. We need to win souls. There's so much ministry opportunity. So much that we can do Folks, the doors at this point are open. They continue to open. The fields are white for harvest. I briefly talked with Crystal Rendell this past week. She's our missionary in Africa. Great to hear her voice. There are doors there that are continuing to open for ministry. They'll be partially be in the report. Uh, God willing, as our connections become become more established over time. Uh, folks, God willing, we're not going to the Flemish cap. We're going to Niger. Wouldn't that be wonderful? As we see those doors continue to open, we talked about that three or four years ago. I think Boko Haram interfered with that, with that plan, right? Two years ago? Yeah. God willing... He'll open that door again. We weren't ready the last time. The timing wasn't right. But there are wonderful things going on over there that, that the Lord is using crystal in. Can't wait. Actually, I can't wait till you come to the congregational meeting in March. You see some of the photos that we have for you and the work that you guys are doing already over in Africa and Niger. Folks, work and ministry and life, it's all about stepping out and taking chances. It's all about waking up every day and pursuing life to the fullest. Allow God to do that. Seize the day in your work. There are going to be lots of seasons of change. There's going to be a lot of transition. Uh, seasons in time. There's, there's a time for everything. You heard that? Oh wait, that's coming up next week. I think Gerald's working on a special song by the birds. The, the turn, turn, turn song, right? There's a season. Turn, turn, turn. He'll have that ready by next Sunday. When you come to cross, chapter 3, folks, seize the day. Make the most out of life. Let's pray.